You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 42. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Uh, so on this episode today, we're going to talk about something that uh, you know that we see on a, on a fair basis. We're going to talk about endometriosis. It's uh, actually in the news as of late, a show that uh, probably many of our listeners have watched on HBO, uh, Girls. Uh, I think it was uh, created by Leah Dunham. Uh, she just came out, or I think there's a March episode or March issue of Vogue magazine where she does an interview and, you know, kind of talks about her plight with endometriosis. She just had a total hysterectomy or no, I guess she, I think she kept her ovaries, I think with the procedure. Yeah. So she had a hysterectomy, so removal of the uterus, but not an oophrectomy, which is removal of the ovaries. Yeah. Endometriosis is, is definitely one of those stubborn, you know, female or uh, problems. You know, maybe you, we can run through kind of a list of, you know, obviously the title of this episode, what does endometriosis feel like? Um, because it is kind of a, it is kind of a clinical diagnosis uh, to say the least. There's a lot of information out there with endometriosis, but I think any of you that know about it or have experienced it both know that it's, you know, it's like, if you looked it up on Wikipedia, there should be like a great big question mark after it because there's so many theories about it. There's limited treatment options, which we want to talk about a little bit, but the quality of life that it affects for certain women can be devastating. You know, some women can have slight cases of endometriosis and not even notice it. And then some women, their endometriosis really, really affects their quality of life. Yeah. And I was reading the article about the Leah Dunham situation this morning before we were uh, going to do this episode. And it said that she, uh, this hysterectomy that she just had in late 2017, I think, I believe it was around November, something like that. Um, that was like her ninth surgery for endometriosis to try to, you know, curb the pain. And it, I guess that was what it usually is for most women. It usually ends up being, they're just so frustrated because it's so painful. The surgery becomes their, you know, their only, you know, their last option for, you know, for resolution and some relief. Yeah. Again, anybody that's had endometriosis or has it, usually they have not had just one surgery. They've had at least two to three surgeries for endometriosis. So, um, and, and they do say, you know, if you look up the statistics at about 10% of, you know, females ages of 15 to 49 have endometriosis. But that's the interesting thing with endometriosis is you can't really truly know that you have it unless your surgeon has gone in there and done a laparoscopic surgery to actually see it. Because a lot of the signs and symptoms of endometriosis can mimic other symptoms of pelvic issues such as cysts or hemorrhagic cysts or fibroids or, or painful periods. So I've had a lot of patients that'll tell me, well, the doctor says I have endometriosis and I'll, you know, I'll go through their symptom list and say, well, you, you could absolutely, but you wouldn't know for sure, unless you had a surgery. So it's one of those, like I said, it should have a big question mark behind it because there's, you know, a lot of times people don't really know what to do with it. And I think unfortunately, because it affects women, that a lot of women just end up just sort of suffering. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. And and that's, uh, I think the TV star, you know, her, her situation, I think she went through, you know, I think it was like a 10 year battle. She was uh, going through that. And I think that's a common plight for lots of women because there really is no convention, really good, you know, conventional, even alternative for that matter. It is a very stubborn problem to deal with because that chronic hormonal stimulation just becomes an issue over and over and over. And that, you know, that endometrial tissue starts to, you know, kind of progress and propagate. And it, you know, it can be very, I'm not a woman, of course, but I can certainly empathize because we've dealt with, you know, quite a few that have just literally suffered over the years. Just like you talked about that endometrioid tissue. So what endometriosis technically is, is the tissue that lines your uterus if you have your uterine tissue, but some of that tissue is seeded and put itself outside of the uterus. So you can have endometrioid or uterine tissue on your fallopian tubes. You can have it on your ovaries. You can have it on your bladder. You can have it on your colon. There's even some reports that you can have it in your sinus membranes. So, and then what does, what does the uterine tissue do, especially if you're a menstruating female is throughout the typical 28 day cycle is that tissue has, it, it'll grow. It'll want to slough off like having a period, but if it's not in the uterus, that can cause a lot of pain. And, you know, they have a lot of new theories now, and we don't even know if they're 100% true, but the old school theory was when you were in utero as an embryo, for some odd reason, your, your uterine tissue was placed outside of the uterus. Now we know that that could be possible, but um, now the, the new theory is that retrograde menstruation. And I even, you know, I have my gynecologist, which I'll go into full transparency that I have endometriosis, told me when I had my first surgery, and on, honestly, my only surgery years ago, that he would go into women to for endometriosis or removal of cysts or whatnot, and he would, and they'd be on their periods at the time, and he would see that that blood flowing from the uterus up into the fallopian tubes out, you know, hanging out in the pelvic area around the, around the ovaries where old school, that was never a thought. Yeah. Right. And the idea that it, that it happened congenital, uh, you know, it was a congenital issue, like from birth um, that, you know, like you said, these cells are just displaced. I, I don't, I don't really, that, that theory to me doesn't really make a lot of sense. What you're talking about, the retrograde grade bleeding, that, that endometrial tissue kind of going into a place where it's not supposed to go. Um, that just in some ways kind of makes log logical sense, even though that's not really supposed to happen. Um, but endometriosis certainly is definitely one of those question marks that, you know, everyone kind of just scratches their head because they don't really know where it comes from or why it happens. Um, but it is very hormonally sensitive, obviously. So it kind of ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows. And as a woman's getting close to her period, you know, she has uh, kind of this miserable, you know, situation that can sometimes last the entire month. Like she never gets a break from it. It can be, you know, it can certainly be increased or the intensity of it can be really bad, you know, certain uh, particular weeks, but it can be kind of an uh, all month long battle for her. It, absolutely. And with endometriosis, like I said, I have endometriosis, or I could say possibly I have it. Maybe I don't have it anymore because you wouldn't know unless the doctor went in and looked at looked at it because I don't have any of the symptoms anymore. But I have the symptoms I remember when I first got my period and I would have mid-cycle spotting. That's a common thing that can happen, happen with endometriosis. And that is sometimes people don't have that at all. You know, heavy periods is another common symptom with that, but heavy periods can also happen with ovarian cysts and fibroids. So I remember having mid-cycle spotting, of course, when you're 19 years old, what do they do? They put you on birth control pills and then you don't worry about it. But knowing that I didn't have a lot of pain, what ended up happening with me is I ended up, you know, not being on birth control pills because I realized later in my 20s that that wasn't a good idea, at least not for me. And then after getting off birth control pills, I would just 
have this irregular bleeding that no one could really figure out until they found that I had cysts on the ovaries. And they were pretty big, but I didn't have any pain. I remember my gynecologist, who I love, who, God bless him, unfortunately, has since passed, telling me, do you have any pain? No, don't have any pain. And so he thought, well, we could leave the cysts and watch them, even though they're pretty big. But one of the cysts had some septums in there that looked unusual. It wasn't clear, like a because cysts are not cancer. But if you have a solid mass on your ovaries, then that could possibly be cancer. And he was concerned because one of the cysts was not solid. So, okay. So, you know, I remember talking to Rob because we were, you know, just about, you know, married at that time and saying, well, what do we do? You know, I'm not a big fan of surgery. We said, listen, we, you know, we probably should do this if the doctor is questioning it. And I completely trusted him. And like I said, I loved my gynecologist at the time. And he was a very good surgeon also is we said, let's go and do this. So when he went in, it was interesting because when I woke up, that cyst was a true endometrioid cyst. We didn't even think that I had endometriosis. We just thought maybe he had told me that cysts, which makes sense, make their own little hormones and they can cause irregular bleeding. They can cause acne. They can cause hair loss. They can cause weight gain. So they can have little minds of their own. That's what we, what we wanted it to be. But then when he went in, thank God it wasn't cancer, but it was an endometrioid cyst that he removed. And then I had another hemorrhagic cyst on the other side that he removed. And then he actually, when I remember when waking up, him telling us, hey, you had a lot of endometriosis in there, like stage four endometriosis. Yeah, right. And at that point, you were in your what? Probably uh, you would have been in your early early to mid-30s at that point. Yeah, mid-30s. And I remember the um, the um, he had a physician's assistant who I still love. is one of my favorite people in the whole world. I remember her like staring at me like really hard, like, are you sure you don't have any pain or you never had any pain? Because I didn't have any pain. Yeah, right. And of course, for the women that have endometriosis, they know that pain is usually the number one thing that gets your attention that is a little bit unrelenting, that tends to get worse and worse and worse over time. Uh, So it is... Uh, unusual for them, right? That's why they kept asking you the question because you and I, you know, we, uh, it was really more of a bleeding issue than it was a pain issue. And they couldn't understand it because of the amount of the tissue that had, that they found, which can only be discovered through that type of laparoscopic procedure. Yeah. He had pictures, which, you know, we had a very good relationship and he knows I'm a physician. So he showed me the pictures and and endometriosis looks kind of like this brownish color just all over the place. So he said it was all over the place and you could see these little brown lesions all over the place. But I think I might have been a little bit more of a rarity. And since then, since learning more about this too, is, you know, he had mentioned he'll go in with people that have tremendous amounts of pain and they don't necessarily have a lot of lesions. So it really depends on the person. So that's why, you know, we've always felt like endometriosis really truly is this big question mark because the only way you can find out is to do a laparoscopic surgery. Who wants to have laparoscopic surgery unless they're having a lot of pain? But at the same time, you can just have a few lesions and still after the laparoscopic still have pain because that's why many women have multiple surgeries. Right, right, right. As we are planning this episode, we are talking about another one of your patients that have that has an issue, kind of a recent issue. And why don't you kind of go into that one a little bit because I think that there's a distinction that kind of needs to be made. Um, like I said, you can't really di- uh, truly diagnose it. You can diagnose it on presentation, um, but you can only really truly diagnose it based on having that laparoscopic uh, procedure. So why don't you tell that story and then we'll come back to you know what the take-home message of that is. Yeah. So sometimes when somebody has an issue going on is then they end up going down the rabbit's hole. So one of my patients, you know, and I love her, you know, I love all my patients, but some of them I love more than others. <laughs> 
Sorry. <laughs> but in any case, so she, you know, she has two cysts on her ovaries, kind of similar to what I, what, you know, what I had. And, but they're, they're truly, because doing the ultrasounds truly are hemorrhagic cysts, meaning that they're, they're benign. So they're never, ever going to turn into cancer and they have some blood in there. That's why they call it hemorrhagic or they call them chocolate cysts because they look, you know, kind of dark in color rather than free fluid or just a clear fluid as some cysts are, which are also really common. And then her gynecologist told her, well, you have endometriosis, but she doesn't have any other symptoms. You know, as part of this podcast is, is she doesn't have irregular periods. She doesn't have mid-cycle spotting or spotting throughout the month. She has absolutely zero pain, but granted, like I said, I didn't have any pain either. She doesn't have any pain with bowel movements because sometimes endometriosis can cause constipation or diarrhea or painful bowel movements. She didn't have, you know, urinary issues, but she is a very much her own health advocate that she wanted to get these cysts taken care of. So while her gynecologist said, well, we have to have surgery surgery and then put you on birth control. You know, that wasn't an option for her. So then she, you know, she went and saw the top specialists in New York City and hoping for an alternative, but they're surgeons. And so they gave her the same option, surgery and then birth control pills. Yeah, right. So, and we see this kind of stuff a lot that people, and this is not even just with, you know, gynecological issues. This is with all specialties. People have a heart problem, they go see a cardiologist. They have a hormone problem, they go see an endocrinologist. And you see, you have a bone problem, you go see an orthopedist. But all of those specialties are really, they're basically surgeons. So a lot of their, you know, a lot of their approaches to certain problems. And now granted, you know, we were talking about this and we kind of, you know, came to the same conclusion. If you need surgery, you go to the best surgeon for that particular condition there is. But that surgeon you know, that specialist for that particular type of problem may not necessarily know or understand all the other possibilities. They know drugs and or surgery and that's it. But that's why you go to them because they are the best of the best of doing that particular type of surgical procedure for that particular type of condition. What we, the approach that we take, you know, we don't necessarily replace the surgeon. We're not there to, to be complete alternative. Sometimes they both need to be done hand in hand uh, where you have the alternative side and a whole possibility of treatment options. And then that surgery can still be there if, you know, if it ever comes to that, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, you know, endometriosis is one of those cases where it certainly can, because as we've said earlier, it can be very stubborn and a very, very hard problem to, to address. And then having multiple laparoscopic surgeries, I mean, that's, you know, we all know having surgery isn't fun, but all the symptoms, because like I said, they, women with endometriosis, a lot of times you have that laparoscopic surgery, they might feel some relief for a short amount of time, but then it comes back. And then for a female to have a hysterectomy and have the uterus removed, they've got to be in a lot of pain. And I, and I understand it. I get it. If, if they're anemic because they're having those heavy periods, they've got low iron, they're feeling terrible. A lot of times endometriosis can create anxiety and depression because you don't know when you're, you know, you're anemic. You don't know if you're going to be bleeding all over the place. You don't know, know when you're going to be bleeding. That chronic pain can really interfere with life. Sometimes the only option is to have that, you know, that uterus taken out. So it's, great that now in this day and age that females have the option to do that. But, you know, there are some other options too, like Dr. Mackey's saying is let that be the last case resort. Yeah, right. Yeah. And certainly, you know, like I said, we're not trying to replace or take any, uh, you know, anything away from the surgeons, but she went from a, a, a doctor in Las Vegas to a doctor in New York City who was the specialist for this type of endometriosis issue 
but really their only option was to do surgery again. But at the same time, I guess our point of bringing that up is you go to that that surgeon because they are a specialist in surgery. Uh, a cardiologist is a specialist in surgery. A orthopedist is a specialist in surgery. That's what they do. You and, you and I are even talking about that as well too. Like if that surgeon did all the other stuff that we do, that means they're kind of, you know, spreading their self a little thin. Maybe they are not the best surgeon to go to because they don't just do surgery all the time. They're not perfecting their craft because there's other specialists that do other things. And now, you know, now it could potentially be for that particular woman in her particular situation. I mean, can you imagine a woman in her twenties or thirties contemplating a hysterectomy when she's still in her reproductive years? I mean, that could be, that could really be a devastating decision to have to make, but your pain is so debilitating. Like, how do you, you know, how do you, you know, weigh the pros and cons to that, but you're miserable on a day-to-day basis, but you want to have children at some point that might be that decision or that possibility might be taken away from you. I think it behooves them to exhaust other options and save that as a, in somewhat as a last ditch effort, because it's still there, right? That, you know, the surgery option is never going to go away. You can always do that. Um, but there's other things that can be done. We're going to discuss some of them, you know, that can be done in kind of pushing back the urgency of that, you know, of that surgical procedure. But, you know, like, like you had said, um, and like I said, is sometimes those you know, those symptoms are really debilitating. I mean, they really are. I mean, endometriosis can make sex painful. So there, there goes your intimacy, you know, and everybody knows, you know, you know, you don't want to lose the intimacy with your partner. So sex can be painful. Having a bowel movement can be painful. Having irregular bleeding. I have patients that are so anemic and unfortunately some of them are even vegan. And I'm like, you just can't be vegan if you're going to be bleeding like this and you're in, in, and you're anemic. We got to figure something out here. <laughs> but you know, that anemia, that puts you at a risk factor. So it's bloating. I have a, a lot of women. I mean, they'll, they'll even, they're so, you know, it's wonderful that I have such a good relationship that they'll stand up and they'll show me their stomachs and say, look how bloated I am. And they truly are because endometriosis, like Dr. Mackey was saying, is it's very hormonally driven. So if you're at a certain point in your cycle, you could be very bloated. Yeah. No, that doesn't mean we're not saying just because you're bloated that you might have endometriosis. So don't misconstrue what she just said there. Bloating is usually a GI issue. It could be a gut flora problem. It could be maybe you didn't have a bowel movement that day. Maybe you're a little constipated. Um, but if you do have some of these other things that we're talking about, and especially when it kind of ebbs and flows, you got really, 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 really bad PMS, really painful PMS. That could be one of those, uh, you know, that seven to 10 day window before your cycle and maybe even lasting a little longer. That can be a, you know, kind of a clue that you might have. And I think the you being a woman and me not, I only, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, but you know, we have talked to lots and lots of women about these kind of situations. And it seems like with endometriosis, it's just like PMS, but there's just a different level of severity to all of that. Yeah. I think because of the inflammation. So you think about that uterine lining is, you know, getting thick, it's getting, and it's trying to slough off, it's trying to bleed, but it's not inside the uterus. So it's, you know, that, that chronic pain. And I think just the whole inflammatory state. So, you know, there's different blood work to do for patients when you're checking for inflammation and whatnot. And I remember way back at the beginning of my practicing years is I remember doing just a, a simple, what they call a sedimentation rate, which is not the be all end all of anything checking for inflammation. But we were, you know, checking for a little bit of inflammation and it was really high. And I thought, well, why is that? And her CRP, which C-reactive protein is another test that you check for, for cardiovascular inflammation. And that was really high. And it was really because that endometriosis was creating so much inflammation that it just threw all her inflammatory markers just through the roof. 
Yeah. And we, we'll talk about inflammation in general later on, but it's this perpetual cycle where the the inflammation kind of breeds more inflammation and it keeps kind of going and you have this kind of metabolic immune system disaster. You throw some female hormones into the mix and now it's like kerosene for, for a fire. And then this blaze just kind of burns out of control month after month after month. And it kind of it almost kind of starts building on itself, which then creates more and more of all those same things. So it kind of, you know, definitely creates a little bit of a vicious cycle, which is why women struggle with it for so long, because, you know, it does more creates more in a situation like that with endometriosis because of menstruating female, her hormones are cycling all the time. Uh, now, another kind of a way that we look at endometriosis and even fibroids and some of these other kind of chronic female issues is that the liver plays a, a fairly big role in that because the liver's job, you know, in a very elaborate enzyme network called the, you won't get into it too much, but it's called the cytochrome P450 system or what is often referred to as phase one that enzyme network gets overburdened and now the liver can't clear out some of those hormone metabolites as efficiently as it should. So too much caffeine, too much alcohol, too much stress. Maybe there's some genetic susceptibility there. You have certain genetic mutations that decrease your liver's functioning ability. And now those metabolites are hanging around all month long when they're supposed to be surging, right? Usually around days, what, 12, uh, uh, 10, 11, 12, or uh, 12, 13, 14 of your cycle, you know, something like that. That's where your estrogen level would be its highest. But now because your liver isn't working quite right because our busy lifestyles and all the things that we do to ourselves, now those hormones are kind of hanging around longer and that tissue that is not supposed to be there anyways is just getting fed over and over and over and then the process just, it just gets worse over time. And just like what you're saying, so if you kind of break that down to really kind of a simplistic nature is the hormones can exacerbate or aggravate endometriosis, particularly estrogen, because estrogen likes to grow things. It grows the uterine lining. That's why women, you know, your estrogen comes up in a certain way during that 28-day cycle, and it comes down and it grows that uterine lining to cause you to get a nice thickness. And then if you don't have pregnancy, then you have a period. So it's really that estrogen that's growing and causing that endometriosis to get worse. But we, we need estrogen. As menstruating females, you know, we make estrogen. That is why endometriosis gets better when somebody goes through menopause is that's why it gets better because they're not making that estrogen. So on a side note is, you know, we always talk about hormones and us females, we make lots of hormones and some women make more estrogen than others. Some women make less progesterone than others. So I do think, you know, that's what we work on a lot is balancing that estrogen and progesterone to try to minimize that inflammatory effect on the uterine lining that's seated outside of the uterus, hence endometriosis. Yeah, right. Now, we will be the first to admit there's no medication that you can take to lower your estrogen, you know, except maybe kind of somewhat birth control will do that a little bit. I mean, it'll, when you take an exogenous hormone like that, it will affect your own production. Um, but we don't, you know, that's not part of our treatment regimen. That's usually the conventional treatment regimen is to give you birth control. And that may kind of calm things down for, you know, for a period of time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you can't, there's no other medication you can take to bring down estrogen. So we do that. Uh, we, we try to have an impact on estrogen by minimizing insulin. Um, that can be, you know, kind of an indirect sort of, uh, sort of way to, you know, start to take off some of that pressure, you know, but that also doesn't always, isn't always present and also can be a very hard thing to do. But really, you know, what we talked about a few episodes ago, when we were talking about estrogen dominance by raising up progesterone. Now you can actually 
you know, have, it's not that necessarily either, and I'm sure you would agree that neither the estrogen or progesterone is either high or low. It's more about kind of the relationship between the two, the two hormones. Yeah. Cause estrogen, I mean, like I said, estrogen's the best hormone in the universe. We love her, but she can be a runaway train if there's nothing holding her back. So progesterone, you know, balancing the progesterone with the estrogen can diminish some of the negative effects of estrogen, which as we talked about before with estrogen dominance, you know, that can cause puffiness, weight gain, munchiness, irritability, moodiness, heavy periods, tender breasts, um, fibrocystic breast density. So balancing that progesterone with it is important. And then as we've always talked about with your adrenals and your thyroid, your adrenal glands and your, you know, adrenal hormones and your thyroid hormones are upstream from that estrogen and progesterone, the reproductive hormones. So if they're off, then you see that reflection of the estrogen and progesterone ratio being off. So you also want to work upstream on that thyroid and those adrenal hormones to be able to help balance that estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, right. Uh, so in some ways, endometriosis is kind of like a convergence of a bunch of problems all happening at once. It's an adrenal issue. It's an insulin problem. It's an estrogen problem. It manifests itself as a true female hormone issue, which it really is. But it has these other factors that when you go see the specialist surgeon in New York City, he doesn't take, he or she does not take any of those other factors into consideration. You know, he has one tool in his tool belt or her tool belt. So then everything that they are going to, going to approach is going to be a nail, right? It's going to be a one, one approach process. Now, granted, I'm not a surgeon. You're not a surgeon. We don't claim to be surgeons. Uh, if you need surgery, then go to the best surgeon there is. I mean, there's no, when you're talking or contemplating surgery, you want to find the best of the best. That that. But our point of bringing that up is if you are having a chronic female hormone problem like this and you're going to go see a quote unquote gynecological specialist, you know, you're really the only option you're going to really get is a surgical option. And like, like we said too, that might be the point that you're at. You might be at that situation where you've exhausted everything else. Um, we're just trying to say, hey, you know what? There are some different ways to approach it. It doesn't have to be just birth control and surgery. There are some in-between things that, and we'll be perfectly transparent and honest, but that may work uh, and they absolutely might not work. This is one of those conditions that I think I saw when we we're doing our research, like there's 200,000 cases of endometriosis every year. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's been a, a you know, because our world is complicated, that there's been a progression to that incidence as, as time goes forward, right? You know, these, you know, kind of aberrant hormonal problems that no one really seems to know how to get a handle on. Yeah, I think that there's probably a, a lot more than, like I said, that 10% of females from the ages of 15 to 49, just because... Sometimes it's not easy to talk to other people about having heavy periods. It can be embarrassing. It can be in some of that stuff is not easy to talk about. I think in this day and age, we're finally being our own advocates to say, hey, let's talk about female health. Let's talk about women's health. So I do think, you know, now people are speaking up about that. Or, you know, before, you know, it was kind of pushed in the corner saying that's a woman's problem. But, you know, it's no fun to have the symptoms of endometriosis. And endometriosis, on a side note, if you are looking to, you know, have a a child with your own uterus, it can, endometriosis can reduce your fertility rates. So, you know, there's that aspect too. So it's, it's one of those things that I do think that we need to put out there and we need to look more into it and help women. Like we had mentioned, you know, we, we do, we love to do the hormones, but there's a lot of lifestyle aspects to it too. Cause I still consider it more of an inflammatory disease. Yes. It's a reproductive disease, for females, but it's also an inflammatory disease. So doing an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, which 
as best as we can in the world that we live in, that would also be a great way of at least trying to help balance that. Yeah, right. And that inflammation, that is, in some ways, that is what we would kind of refer to as like this metabolic inflammatory process, which we don't really need to get into right now. But um, once that process is in motion, a lot of inflammatory diseases, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all these things are examples of these inflammatory process that happens inside the body. And it is a little bit of a vicious cycle. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, And it cannot Uh, It cannot just have a surgical approach. Like you said, you're one of the rare cases. And for you and I, a hysterectomy for you wasn't an option. We don't have any children, but at that point, we certainly didn't want to, we didn't want to have to make that decision then. So having a hysterectomy was clearly not not a situation, but you only had one surgery. That doesn't happen very well. Usually it's multiple procedures over and over and over because really they're only taking one approach. They're only taking a surgical approach. How many surgeries do you have to have to realize that it has, you have to do something more than just surgery? Because in some ways, the surgery itself, where you go in there laparoscopically and you, you know, literally scrape out some of that tissue, it's creating more inflammation. So now that tissue has the potential to grow back with a vengeance afterwards. Like I said, nothing against the surgeons. They're very good at what they do. I can't even imagine being a surgeon, right? I mean, I'm not afraid of blood, but you know, the idea of being a surgeon is like, remarkable. So if you need surgery or at that point when it comes to endometriosis or even a hysterectomy for other reasons, choose the best and uh, and then hopefully you've exhausted all the other options because there are lots of other options out there. The hard part when it comes to endometriosis is there's no standard for endometriosis therapy. There's not one one thing you can do or a protocol you can do for every single woman and it have it work every single time. That's why it's a tricky problem to solve. Yeah, and just on on a side note, you're right. The hysterectomy wasn't an option for me because I didn't really have terrible heavy periods or a lot of pain. So, but I can understand if it was like, you know, I'm at my wit's end. It's like just do anything and everything because, you know, you got to have a quality of life. So there is, you know, that spectrum there. But I do think, you know, when you're, as with tackling anything, as we've always advocated, is there's not a one-step approach. There's not a cookie-cutter approach that fits everybody. You know, you have to treat everybody as an individual, create a lifestyle that's going to reduce down their inflammation, work on their hormone balancing, work on their thyroid, work on their adrenals, work on their stress level, because we all know stress raises up cortisol, and then that makes that crazy glucose-insulin roller coaster happen, hence there's more inflammation. So it really is more of a of kind of working on that whole spectrum of the patient rather than the surgeon. But just like Dr. Mackey said, seriously, if I if I needed surgery, I don't want to see a surgeon that says, oh yeah, I, I work with nutrition and I work with lifestyle and exercise and I really know a lot about supplements. I'd be like, um, I think I'm going to go find someone else. Not because that's not good, but I want a surgeon that only does surgery, that does the, if he's going to be, he or she is going to be cutting into me with some kind of instrument. I want to make sure that that's all they focus on. But at the same time, like my patient, I was saying, she went to go see the specialist that specialize in surgery. So of course that's what they're going to talk about. So she left very dis, you know, kind of disheartened because she felt like she didn't have any other choices. That's why seeing a functional medicine doctor, seeing other docs to try to get, you know, a whole idea of, okay, where are my options? Because as Females and males and human beings in this day and age is we have lots of options. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think really that's the take home message for this episode is that, you know, if you are facing a, a chronic problem like that, it cannot be and should not be just a drugs and surgery approach. There are lots of other things that can be done. Whether they work or not, that's the hard part, right? Because everyone's an individual, everyone's different. Things need to be tailored to the patient or to the person, whatever their situation is. Uh, so if you're contemplating or thinking that you might actually have endometriosis, you're not really sure, on the show notes to this episode, there is an endometriosis symptom checklist. You can down, uh, you can actually see that there. It's a separate blog post. You can see the list of symptoms, and there'll be actually a separate download that you can uh, that you can you know, download for yourself just to you know just to to see if uh, how many of them you actually you know have or um, suspect anyways. And like I said, at that point, it's still just a clinical maybe a clinical guess um, based on your symptom picture. And if you do have endometriosis, you know that's. It is a serious disease. I mean, a lot of times, you know, in the past, people would just push it to the side or just tell you to go have a baby because it gets better after that. It is something I think, you know, we're going to ha- see a lot more on the horizons on about endometriosis, about female health. And don't, you know, don't, I know it's, it can be kind of embarrassing talking to your gynecologist or your doctor or your specialist or your functional medicine doctor about it, but don't, don't be because by having a voice, then we can have a voice for everybody else. Right, right, right. So download the checklist if you're if you're curious, if you're you know kind of still in that deciding phase. Uh, now, granted, there's lots of uh, overlap between other things. So if you do meet some of the criteria, kind of you know, make sure we're kind of easing some fears that if you do have a couple of things on the list of symptoms, it doesn't mean that you have endometriosis, right? You could just have PMS. You could have some other things that, you know, correlate. You could have so just, fibroid. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So just know that, it, you know, if you do have more than a couple on the on the symptom list, just know that it doesn't automatically mean. The only way, as we said earlier, the only way that you're really going to know is if you had a laparoscopic procedure, but we also want to kind of not discourage you from doing that, but don't be running into your gynecologist and say you want a laparoscopic procedure unless it's, and they can even kind of help you with that. If you have questions, you can reach out to us. We can certainly um, do our best, uh, you know, to you know, give some insight, but nonetheless, you can download the uh, the, the checklist and, and we can go from there. Dr. Davidson, you have anything else to add on that or, you know, can we bring this one to a close for now? No, this was great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Uh, until next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.